Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, March 21st, and we continue with looking at Paul's letter, the book of Colossians. Today we look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. It's really the second part of last week's sermon, This, these two steps of walking with Jesus, this walk, this step one, step two, and repeat. Step one, throwing off the old man, and step two, putting on the new. This week, we look at what Paul says are the things that we are to put on since we have thrown off the old. Let me, uh, let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be wholly pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So again, we look at Colossians chapter 3, picking up with verse 12 through 17, reading from the ESV. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I used to coach under a man named Babe Howe. Babe Howe, a legend in the state of North Carolina in both football and baseball, high school football and baseball. And Coach Babe Howe used to quote a song by Bing Crosby. It went like this. You've got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You know, those lyrics are accurate description of the passage that we have here in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. Listen to these affirmative words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's verse 12. There are the positive qualities of Christian living, of living in Christ. And through this entire section, Paul has written in terms of putting off and putting on clothes. And that suggests that this ought to be done every morning. As God's chosen people, we are to put on daily these qualities that reflect the character of Jesus. Each of these terms could be used of him, after all. So when we get up, we start out by putting on these qualities of grace. How do you get up in the morning? I mean, really, how, how do you get up? Some, some of us have great difficulty. Some uh, leap right out of bed, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to face the day. But the others of us are, myself included, drag along for a couple of hours needing a cup of coffee or two to get us going. It is 
reported that Albert Einstein once said, the problem with the speed of light is it comes too early in the morning. No matter what time we get started, however, Paul's word is clothe yourselves. When we get up, deliberately put on these qualities of life. The reason, of course, is because we can put them on. That's the argument throughout this whole letter. We are a new man, a new creation. We are a new woman in Christ. Therefore, we can begin to live that way. So we have to do it. These things, this life, this putting off and putting on is not necessarily salvation. It is part of salvation. It is the sanctification, but it's a life in Christ. It's a sanctification issue, and that is Paul's exhortation. You know, there's a lot of confusion among believers at this point. Many of us seem to find great difficulty putting on these positive virtues as we begin our day or throughout the day. And that's probably because we've never thoroughly understood or perhaps have not practiced what Paul said earlier of putting off the old man. Learn to recognize the characteristics of the old life, the self-centered, praise-loving, prideful life, in every one of us. We have to reject that. Put it off. Do as Paul says in the previous paragraph. Put to death, therefore, whatever it is that belongs to our earthly nature. Treat it as though you're dead to it. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. Consider yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. And we can because God has given us a new basis of life. There's a careful distinction that Scripture makes between the old man and the new man. And these positive admonitions are not addressed to the old life. That is, to be put away. There is a negative quality of living which precedes, which is before, the positive. And when believers live in the negative, the full blessing and life of Jesus is not available So we must reject the appeal of the old, which comes to us so easily from past experience. It still haunts us as new creations of Christ because it's taken over our brain and our patterns and our past programming. We still all too easily play over in our minds the old movies of the past. But this is to be set aside. And if we do that, then we can respond to these these exhortations to be what God has now made us to be. So when we start our day, we begin this way, Paul says. We put away the old reactions and then clothe ourselves deliberately in our thinking, these seven qualities that reflect the life and the very temperament of Jesus. The first one is compassion. Clothe yourself with compassion. Literally, the word is bowels of sympathy. Ancient folks believe that the emotions originated in the bowels. We don't really think that way, although we get close to it when we say, you know, I've got a gut feeling. Came across a little story of a little girl who was asked to describe the parts of a person. And she said, well, people have three parts, the brainium, the chester, and the abdominal cavity. The brainium holds the brain, the chester holds the heart, and the abdominal cavity holds the bowels, of which there are five, A, E, I, O, and U. We must understand what this phrase means. Compassion is what 
we would call a heart of pity. It is a sense of sympathy, of empathy with someone. When we come to the breakfast table, we come with compassion. Compassion for that strange-looking creature shuffling around in the kitchen in slippers. Or come, to compa- or, or come with compassion for that very gruff, bearded fellow ignoring everybody. Or those kids who are trying to get everything together before they go to school. We approach life with compassion. That's what Paul is saying. Put it on when you get up in the morning. We are a new person. Therefore, live like it. After that, going a step further comes kindness. Kindness is action that reveals compassion. Action that arises out of a sense of sympathy. It it can take lots of different forms. A smile, a kind word, a, a pat on the shoulder, an invitation for coffee, an offer to help. We are to put on compassion and kindness as we start our day and throughout the day. Many centuries ago, a certain young man from a rural setting went to live in a large city, and he fell in with the wrong uh, crowd. He lived a wild and a, a really rebellious life, becoming involved in many hurtful things, which almost destroyed him. But he heard a preacher one day, and though he did not particularly appreciate his preaching— didn't necessarily even agree with him, he was struck by the man. So he went to hear him again. And soon that preacher was able to lead that young man to Christ. Well, that young man has become famous as the great St. Augustine. And this is what Augustine wrote of Ambrose, pastor in the cathedral in Milan. I began to love him, not at first as a teacher of the truth, which I despaired of finding in the church, to be honest, but as a fellow creature who was kind to me. What an open door kindness can be. The third quality is humility, which John Stott rightly calls the rarest and fairest of all Christian virtues. The chief Christian virtue is humility because it is exact opposite of the actual worst of all sin, and that is pride. So thus we are to put on humility, to think humbly of ourselves. As Paul puts it in another place, we are to regard others as better than ourselves. We're not to consider ourselves in any way as superior to others. The fourth quality is gentleness, a familiar word that is oftentimes translated meekness, not weakness, but meekness. I kind of like the definition that says meekness is strength under control. It is real strength, but it does not have to display itself or show off how strong it is. This is what Jesus amazingly displayed um, as he described himself as meek and lowly in heart. The first curriculum, the first course of the Holy Spirit is that we must do what Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. That is what we are to learn as we go on. Uh, Here's another excellent definition of meekness. It's a willingness to waive our rights for a good cause. Set aside our rights. Do not demand that we be satisfied. But for the sake of a good cause, we willingly or we be willing, rather, to suffer loss. Meekness is the exact opposite of rudeness and abrasiveness. 
The fifth quality is patience. Literally, it is long-suffering, the enduring of another's exasperating conduct without flying into rage. It is a, a negative term. It is holding back, restraining ourselves from becoming upset or speaking sharply or shrilly to somebody. Linked with patience is the sixth quality or forbearance, bear with one another. This is similar to long-suffering, but it's the positive side. Literally, it is to uphold and support someone, not only to restrain ourselves, but to support others, encourage them. It is an amazing Christian quality. And the last quality, which I'm pretty sure Paul deliberately puts last, is forgiving one another. Forgive what other grievances we may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave us. What a beautiful thing it is to find forgiveness in a believer's heart. It does not mean that we are not to air a grievance we may feel. We're told in Scripture that if we have something against another, to go to the other and tell him his or her fault between you and them alone. We, we do not have to repress every feeling of injustice or unfairness that we feel. We are to say how we feel. That is healthy. But having done that, and this is the point, having gotten it out, forget it. Forgive it. Put it away. No longer let ourselves think about it. Our model, of course, is Christ's treatment of us. That is what he did when, he, when, when we came to him. When he comes to us, he forgives us the unkind thoughts, the blasphemous attitudes, the grievous, hurtful sins that we have done. The Old Testament tells us that when we come to him, he casts our transgressions into the depths of the sea. It's helpful to remember that forgiveness means at least a couple of things. First of all, it means that we are not to bring up to the person what we have forgiven, the thing that we forgave. We're to treat them as though it did not happen. We're not constantly to harass them about it with reminders of the things that they did in the past. And you see relationships, friendships, marriages can stumble at this point because sometimes when we, when not only we get hysterical, but we get historical. We go back over the past, ready to bring it out all over again and rehash it once again, which shows that it has never truly been forgiven in the first place. God does not do that. How terrible would it be if he did, if he constantly, you know, rubbed our face in it and reminded us of all the awful things that we did. The second thing that forgiveness means is that we do not tell anybody else about the matter that is forgiven. We do not gossip about it to others. It's not that we actually erase it from memory. We, we may think of it from time to time, but we don't, and we're not to dwell on it. We're not to allow it to take over again, to awaken feelings of resentment, of unfairness, and play it over and over and over again. We can do that because we ourselves have been forgiven. Remember how graciously God has set aside my failures, our own failures. The third thing that forgiveness means is we don't have to remind ourselves of what has been forgiven. Even in our private thoughts, we never allow the offense to come up and to kind of change the way our attitude toward the one that we have forgiven. If it does come up, we have to, we must put it away and remind ourselves that we too need to be forgiven. We do not want people mulling over our sins and dredging them up all the time. 
See, forgiveness means to put it aside, even to ourselves, because that is what Christ has done for us. Then having given us these seven beautiful qualities, Paul tells us to wrap it all around with the bond of love. Over all these virtues, he says, put on love, which binds them together, all in perfect unity. I heard, I've heard it said like this, put on the overcoat of love. Love ties everything together like a belt or a girdle. This, of course, is that, that quality of acceptance of others because we are a new person. We are no longer the old person we once were. We've put that aside already. We treat the past as though we were dead to it and be what God has made us to be. So don't miss the basis for all of this given in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, and there it is. That's something that God did for us. We did not make ourselves holy. We did not elect ourselves into the kingdom of God. Jesus said once to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear and bear much fruit. Though we needed to make a decision to follow Jesus, we very soon come to understand that we would never have made that decision had we not been drawn to him and chosen by him. It's his choice of us that enables us to choose him. It's important to note also that when Paul calls Christians God's chosen people, or as it literally says, God's elect, we are chosen and we are holy. Here's a word that means to be separate and distinct. We are intended to be different. Christians are to live differently than the world around lives. We do not run after the crowd and follow its fashions and value systems. We are expected to be different because we are different. We share a different kind of life. Then the third phrase is, Dearly loved by God, dear to the heart of God. There's no more powerful motivating force in our lives than to remember that we are loved by God. He loves us deeply. Why should should God love us the way that he does? To be such people as we are and still be loved by him, it's, it's got to be the most amazing thing of all time. We're never to forget this. It is the basis for action. Paul moves beyond our lives as individuals to then the church, us as a group, and how we ought to function as a body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and counsel one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. What what an amazing picture of the functioning church. What, what, should, what should it be like when we come together in a meeting like this or, or when we're together away from this place? Well, church life is, is to be characterized, according to Paul, by, by three Ps, by, by peace, praise, and, and precepts, or maybe a little easier to understand or if you prefer, three Ts, tranquility, thanksgiving, and teaching. As Paul points out, it begins with peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We're all called to this. Churches are to live at peace. The word rule here is interesting. It's the word um, actually kind of defined, I guess, is act as an umpire. 
Baseball and softball fans know that the person who stands behind the catcher rules on the plays and makes the calls, and that person is the umpire. And they, re- they remain absolutely unruffled, no matter what happens. You know, managers might curse and kick dirt. Fans might throw bottles, yet they remain unperturbed. And that's the idea. That's the idea here. Let the calmness of Christ rule among us. Consider Jesus in the Gospels. He moves into every situation with total poise. He's not upset by others, but remains calm and collected. When other people are panicking around him, he's in control. That is to characterize the church and its functioning. Let the peace of Christ rule in your midst, because that is what we are called to do. His serenity may possess our hearts and act as an umpire among us. The second thing is to be thankful. We find this, this is everywhere in the scripture. Believers are to be characterized by an attitude of gratitude about everything. Why? Because we know that we don't deserve anything. Everything comes to us as a gift of God's love. We learn from the scriptures that we are members of a fallen race. At birth, we begin to manifest rebellion, treason against the things of God. All of us, we are self-centered and opposed to others. We have all manifested that right from birth. And God, in perfect justice, justice could have wiped out the entire race and none of us would have hope for anything in this life or beyond. But God gave, gave this to us anyway because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And everything else comes with it. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us. Now, how, how shall he not all, with him also freely give us all things? So we're to be thankful, Paul says. Let thankfulness characterize our meetings. Let there be an attitude of gratitude. No one, no one wants to be around a grumpy Christian. We should be the most gracious people we all know. The third thing. Instruct one another by means of the word. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. The word is to be well known among us. It's to be the central thing in teaching us how to live. This Bible, this scripture, it is an amazing book. It's the insight into true life. It is unrivaled anywhere in the world. There is nothing else that even remotely approaches it in its view of reality. Notice, too, too, how the whole body is to be involved in this. We are to teach and counsel one another, everybody, in homes, in church, in classes, in Bible study groups, in breakfast groups. Gather around the Word. We ought to, be, we ought to thoroughly know and understand the Word. Here is described amazing, marvelous mysteries which challenge the greatest minds. Here are simple statements that explode in our brain and illuminate the whole landscape of life. Jesus said that he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is not dead. This is, this is not dead, lifeless truth. It is alive. It is vital. It is refreshing. It is illuminating. It dispels doubts, fears, and difficulties. 
We are to center our lives around the word of God. And with this, Paul links also the ministry of music. Music belongs to the believer. Here Paul recognizes its powerful ministry in our lives. We're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms, of course, are the inspired utterances of the book of Psalms and found in in various other books in the Bible. How how marvelous is this teaching from God put, put in rhythm and beauty of expression? Hymns are literally praise songs, responses that, that people have composed to reflect that thanksgiving to what God has done. With this is linked spiritual songs, testimony songs, which reflect again how God has, has led us. So as we sing, we're ministering to each other, encouraging one another. We may have come into church today depressed, discouraged, maybe angry. But as the congregation lifted up one of these great songs, we were lifted by it as well. We, we begin to rejoice again in the spirit because the music and the words reminds us of the greatness of God. So we are to sing the truth as well as study the truth with thanksgiving in our hearts for all that God has done. And then verse 17 moves to the arena of society, to the world. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the the Father through him. Whatever you do, that means the whole of life is to be related to the Lordship of Jesus. Everything in life, every activity can become an act of worship. Even routine things can be offered to Christ, done in the name of the Lord motivated by that relationship we have with him. What a difference of motivation then it makes to be a believer. We do things we do not like because we offer them willingly to the Lord as as a sacrifice to him. If we love someone, we will do things for their sake that we do not particularly like doing. That's the point here. There are things that money could never pay us to do, but love will motivate us to do them. And if we love the Lord, we offer to him the activities of our very day, we do everything with this, this new view to his glory. In, in the next section, Paul's going to expand this to, to various relationships of life. And here, meanwhile, is his marvelous exhortation to us. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to close today by reading Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. God bless, and go in peace.